Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. We've got 1 Samuel 16 is up for this evening. We may or may not dip into chapter 17. I wouldn't be surprised if these two chapters actually take three weeks to get through. There's a lot going on, so... Probably rather do spread it across three weeks than keep us here till eight o'clock. Y'all would bail on me anyway. So, well, let's pray and let's get into chapter 16. Lord, we thank you for the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ, for the abundant opportunity we have to gather around your written word, to examine it, to discuss it, to ponder it together. We pray that as we do so, you would make us into better readers, that we would become more familiar with the story of Old Testament and New, of the interconnections between them, of the consistent drive of the plot toward Jesus and toward the new creation and our place in it. Would you help us to see our place in this story? Humbly, though and to see our sin as a contributing factor to that plot. We pray that you would open our eyes as we consider uh, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, and this this introduction of David. We ask these things in the name of David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel 16. Let's read this together. Um, one thing you will, you may notice as we read, but I'll, I'll point out just before we begin, is despite our familiarity with the text, despite headings that may be present in your Bible, um, the narrator very carefully delays the mention of David's name. Because, of course, we have all of these associations with the person David, that will immediately come to mind as soon as we hear his name. And so the narrator has crafted this chapter of Samuel in such a way that especially if we're reading this for the first time, we get quite a long way into things before we ever hear David's name. That's a, an important element of what's, what's going on in the way the story is told. So let's read, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. 
And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pause there. And then we'll, we'll read the rest of the chapter in a bit. So what, what do you see? What questions do you have? What, what comes to mind as we read this? The question that they ask, the elders of the city come, and they're trembling, and they say, do you come peaceably? Like, this is Samuel, who's been a judge for however long, and they're afraid of his presence. Is that because they realize what his mission is, and that could mean the king's going to turn on them by his mere presence, due to his mere presence? And... And also, can't help but notice that Jesse seems to know what this is all about. Like, you know, he brings his firstborn, this is going to be him. No, the next one. And the way that Samuel speaks to him, it's not any of these. Without saying, I'm looking for the king, but at least not in the text. But he seems to, to get it. Good. There's an awful lot going on in this chapter. And a, and a big question behind it that leads to another big question is how much do the people Samuel is interacting with know? We look back at chapter 15, right? Samuel knows that Saul's rejected. Saul knows that Saul's rejected. Do the people generally know that Saul is rejected from being king, right? Does this conversation between Saul and Samuel happen before the people? Does it happen before a small group of officers as opposed to before the nation, right? To what extent do the people know that Samuel has been told that the Lord has chosen someone else over and instead of Saul? And that connects with this question that, that Rose has brought, right? Why, why are the elders asking Samuel this question? Do you come in peace? Right? Like, of course he comes in peace. He's the Lord's prophet. Except that we've seen this tension develop between king and prophet, which has the potential to explode into civil war. And Bethlehem appears to have not taken a side, right? Are they on the side of Samuel or are they on the side of Saul? Or are they a third party hoping not to be drawn into what may or may not be unfolding. So to what extent are they 
knowledgeable of the specific mission Samuel is on, or maybe on, versus wary of this opening chasm between king and prophet? Well, 1 Samuel 15.33 was probably pretty vivid on their brains when uh, Samuel said, As your swords make women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Hegai to pieces before the Lord. So whether they knew or remembered or where that, I'm thinking they might have done that part. And so here's this warrior prophet who's not scared of a sword as pots of men and women. And here he comes to Bethlehem, little town of Bethlehem. And um, I'm thinking, but the interesting part, not to get ahead, is here we see the Bethlehemites, so how we pronounce it, trembling. But then later, or no, I don't know, I'm mid- mixing my sequence up. But Samuel is fearful. Samuel is fearful. If I go to Bethlehem, they'll kill K-I-L-T me. They'll kill me. So yeah, they're fearful of him and Samuel's fearful of Saul or vice versa. It's just crazy. There's a whole lot of shaking going on. A whole lot of shaking. A whole lot of shaking going on. Yeah. The prophet's afraid, the king's afraid, the people are afraid. I'm sure that Samuel's deed there at the end of chapter 15 probably made the evening news. That he's certainly a very capable man of violence when the need arises. But that's executed against an enemy of God's people. So if they're... Yeah, yeah, Agag. Right? So if their fear is connected with that incident, are they afraid that they may be drawn into this opening or developing conflict between king and prophet in such a way that would put them on the side of God's enemies? Or at least so far as Samuel saw it. Oh, no. Sit back and see who's going to win. You jump in behind them. Their inclination, honestly, is to vote third party and just watch what happens, right? Or they're just, you know, they're going to vote their conscience by not voting in this. Yeah. So, good. You brought up a couple of things, right? In, in the midst of this, right, we're, we're also wondering how much does Jesse know? And at what point does he know it, right? And, and part of what's wrapped up in this is, you know, Samuel is given offering of sacrifice as a cover, but does anybody buy it? And is that part of why the townspeople are trembling? Like, they know it's a cover, and they know that's not what he's actually there for. And when he consecrates Jesse and his sons, how much does he say in inviting them to the sacrifice? And the fact, if you notice, verse 5, right, the, the fact that he speaks to, consecrates, invites Jesse and his sons separately from the elders, says something probably about the position of Jesse and his family, namely that they're not prominent. Jesse's not among the elders, right? If you are going to head to Bethlehem on business, it's unlikely that you would encounter Jesse because he's not there, right? He has to be addressed separately by Samuel, right? 
he, the elders come to him in verse 4, and they meet him, and he speaks to them. He tells them, consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And separate from that, and he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it's two separate sets of invitations. When he's consecrated them, apparently David's not there. Because David was out in the field with his sheep. So the one that God chose was not one of the people who were consecrated. That's an interesting observation. Thank you for highlighting that. Because, um, yeah, presumably, if, if, if um, Samuel has spoken directly to Jesse and consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them, then you're right. The fact that David's not there would seem to suggest that he was absent for both that invitation and that consecration. Because why else would Samuel say, is there another son? Yeah, because Samuel would have known if he'd been there. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, thank you for drawing that out. I, I had missed that detail. What this is... So set apart... Probably, or in general, it just means set apart. But probably it, here it would indicate some kind of ceremonial cleanliness, right? That at least they showered and dressed up, right? They've done something, right? They put on their Sunday clothes to get ready for this, this sacrifice, right? Because it's not just the slaughtering of an animal, but it's a, it's a covenant meal where they gather together. Well, would it be something like us preparing ourselves for communion? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think that would be a good analogy. Getting prepared then for the sacrifice. Good. I love that. So where was David? I mean, I mean, we know where he was. But he wasn't there for the invitation and the consecration, which is a really good observation. Kenny, you made a comment about mixing the sequence. Well... If the people don't know, broadly speaking, what's transpired in chapter 15, some of what's transpiring, especially in the opening of this chapter, doesn't make as much sense immediately following chapter 15 as it would later. And that opens up a larger discussion of if we're tracking these events in the order in which they unfolded chronologically, which comes first? chapter 16 or chapter 17. And that's going to become more acute as Saul meets David in the second half of chapter 16. But in chapter 17, he has no idea who David is. And when he meets David in the second half of chapter 16, he is going to be looking for somebody who can play the harp. And what he's going to be provided is a warrior who happens to have taken guitar lessons in his Pretty good at it. Whereas David has not established himself as a warrior in the eyes of the people until chapter 17, as we're reading the narrative. These are the clues that we are meant to pick up on that suggest that this may have been rearranged chronologically. This is not someone pulling the wool out of our eyes and shuffling things and hoping we don't catch it. This is skillful, deliberate, narrating things that highlight the themes both of Saul's decline and of David's rise. That makes sense? Right? In the same way, 
uh, when we're reading the Gospels, Jesus cleanses the temple. And if we're reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that temple cleansing is at the end of Jesus' ministry. It's one of the things that happens during Passion Week and is one of the tipping points in the opposition and the, the decision to kill him. But if we're reading John, the temple cleansing is in chapter 2, right? We're introduced to Jesus. We get the wedding at Cana. We get the temple cleansing. And then we get the conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. Well, that's weird. What's going on? Are there two temple cleansings? Did John forget when it was and just put it somewhere? Well, no, right? John has placed it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of his narration of the story of Jesus, to place front and center for us the consistent opposition and the struggle over authority and power that Jesus has with the Jerusalem establishment, right? And he highlights that thematically by placing that temple cleansing at the beginning of his description of Jesus' public ministry. Now, could it be that there were two temple cleansings? Sure. Maybe Jesus threw people out of the temple twice, both at the beginning and at the end of his public ministry. I think that's unlikely, that there are people who are a lot smarter than me who think that that is, is the answer to what's going on. But I think more likely, right, John has placed it early for thematic reasons, right? He knows that we all know that in terms of when this happened, it's during Passion Week. But you need to know that what this tells you about the conflict between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees characterized his entire public ministry and is not something that only became an issue at the end. In the same way here, I think the narrator actually has, is introducing us to David thematically and not chronologically. And he's highlighting especially David's fitness for the office of king at the same time that he's highlighting Saul's decline. One thing that we'll see develop over these several chapters is that, is that Saul is slowly coming to pieces, right? We're, we're going to see that immediately with the, the tormenting spirit that the Lord sends and his need to be soothed, right? Saul is losing his mind a few marbles at a time over the next several chapters. And actually, the, the chronological tension that's created by that thematic presentation actually just highlights all the more Paul's losing of his marbles. Because if we're just reading it straight, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, Saul's introduced to David, and then Saul doesn't know who David is. And it's, it's kind of a delightful thing the narrator does that leaves you scratching your head and like, wow, this guy really is losing his mind. Anyway. That's something to keep asking about the relationship between chapter 16 and chapter 17, right? Is this narrated out of temporal order to highlight certain themes? What does that do for our understanding of David and our understanding of Saul? And how does that play into the presentation of each person as it does so? You know, Mr. Clyde hit on a very interesting thing about Jesse. And, you know, families, moms and dads, they, they have children that they might or might not prefer, if you will. And so I'm thinking that, again, you can only 
respond to what is in Scripture that Jesse might have had ideas of who he thought was kingly. But interestingly, uh, whatever he, his regard was for his youngest son, David, out in the fields, the reality later in David's writing in Psalms is that I think I recall there was only one reference that David made, maybe two, to Jesse. And once again, the inference is that maybe David's mother was pouring into to David. Again, filling the gaps here. And, but yeah, the whole thing about Jesse and the nominal role or, or even reference to him is very curious. We'll see. It's an interesting contrast between Saul and David on that level, right? Because when we first meet Saul in chapter 9, we first hear a whole lot about his dad and about how his dad is wealthy and his dad is known. His dad is prominent in Benjamin. And then, oh, the chapter is about his son, Saul. Like a little bit of a, we hear a whole lot about Kish and then we're going to talk about Kish's son. Whereas with David, there's, we see Jesse, we interact with Jesse, but there's very little said about David's family. He's not prominent in Judah. He's not among the elders of Bethlehem. He's not a, a man of strength or man of means, as Kish is described. And for that matter, David's not prominent among his sons. But how is David described? When, when Jesse mentions, there's, there's this interesting twist that's not a, apparent in our English translations, by the way. When, when Samuel asks him, uh, right, it's not just knees, it's not just knees. Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? The word that's there is not the word for son. It's are all your lads here? Are all your boys here? And that's a word whose range covers Anything from young boy to household servant. And it, it covers that whole gamut. It's as though Samuel is leaving open the possibility. You remember Abraham, right, suggested that maybe Eliezer of Damascus, his servant, was going to become heir of his house. It's as though Samuel is grasping for Surely God didn't send me here for no reason. Like maybe there's somebody in your household we haven't seen yet. But no, there's, there's another son. And what's said about that son? What does Jesse say? How does he describe him? Handsome. Well, how does, how does Jesse describe him? The narrator does highlight his appearance, which is interesting after we're told not to look on his appearance. He actually is quite striking. But what does Jesse say about him? He's the youngest and keeping sheep. His brothers kind of make little feet keeping sheep. He got the short straw. Yeah, he got the short straw, right. Think about what you know of the biblical story and especially of how kings present themselves in the Old Testament. What might be significant about these descriptions of David? Symbolism of the shepherd, okay? Typically, would this uh, son inherit 
And yet, so many times, it seems like it's the youngest that God chooses. Yes. The cultural expectation, right, is that the eldest son gets a double portion of the inheritance, which is, is not just about money. It's about having the resources to then become the head of the family and take care of the rest of the family. And yet, repeatedly, especially in Genesis, we see the Lord passing over the elder to choose the younger. Mm. And here we have all of the older sons passed over, but the youngest remain, which ties into that pattern that the Lord establishes in Genesis. Also, he's tending the sheep, right? And this is how ancient Near Eastern kings liked to present themselves, right? I am a shepherd, right? The people of my kingdom are my flock. The Lord uses that image for himself. And it's an image used both within Israel and among Israel's neighbors of the ideal king, that they provide for and protect their people like a shepherd does for his sheep. So, oh yeah, there's another one, but he's not cutting the grass. He's tending the sheep. Like, ooh, there's this little burst of hope with that. Like, that's interesting. Okay. Let's, let's see this young man. And so, so Samuel responds, right? Uh, send and get him, for we will not sit down, or we will not turn around in order to sit down, probably, till he comes here. What else do you notice? What other? I'm just thinking about that in terms of if I was with a group of fellas and they're waiting to eat, the practicality is, are you kidding me? We gotta wait for a little brother? You know, let's eat now. And so I'm thinking they hustled out to get him, whether he was a short distance or long distance. I think it was a quick run to get little brother. Yep. Maybe that's I, I reckon. But the other part of, of this situation too is here is this youngster. Whether it was ten years old or fifteen years old, he was not ready. For, for leadership. He was not ready for royalty, if you will, uh, in, in the world's eyes. But he had been out there with these sheep and he had a lot of time to think. It's like driving all the way to Oklahoma City. We got a lot of time to think. <laughs> and ride all the way back, too, yeah. So here's this guy, here's this little dude Well, what age is he? Well, some say 10, some say 15. What does the text say? It doesn't. It says nothing. It says nothing. Right? But then later it says he's a warrior and a mighty man, a mighty man of valor. And I'm thinking, how does a 10-year-old reach that point? Suggests the possibility that he's probably not 10. That's what right? occurred to me. Yeah. So a great comment on that um, from David Firth is that big red book you've seen me bring in here a few times. Um, He says, the text provides no indication that David was a little boy in spite of the popularity of that concept. Rather, he is a humanly unlikely candidate because he is the youngest son of an undistinguished family 
in an otherwise unimportant town. Jump ahead to uh, chapter 17, talking about his uh, not ready to be a leader or a warrior. He does tell Saul when he gets ready to go against uh, Goliath. I've been out there with a sheep, I killed bear, and I yeah, killed lion. That's a good point. So, and he's, he's not killing those bears and lions with an AR-15, right? <laughs> In fact, he talks about grasping the bear by the beard, right? Um, and the um, bottom line, it says, or the smallest. Yeah. Youngest or smallest. Yeah, so it's the adjective that means small, but in this context, it's, it's used to indicate youngest. So, but yeah, smallest in age. Maybe size, maybe not. But it, it doesn't, it indicates his relative age, not his absolute age, right? He's the youngest of eight brothers. That doesn't mean he's eight. So, but especially because this is our first introduction to David, right? Um, it leaves us wondering, and because of all of the flannel graphs and Sunday school material and cartoons, especially with chapter 17, right? We tend to assume. He's about 10, maybe 12, right? Like one of my sons right here. But that's actually, the text doesn't say that. And several of the things it does say indicate that that's probably not the case. He is an extremely unlikely candidate for king, but not because of his age. It's because he's from this little backwater town that doesn't amount to anything, from a family that's probably not even going to show up on the census. And he's the youngest of the sons, for that matter, right? He's not the one who's going to get the family business, right? He's not the one who's going to take over the, the leadership of the family, right? He's not the one who's going to make his father and grandfather and uncles proud by a military career, except it turns out that he will, right? He's the baby of the family. Doesn't mean he's the baby, um, but he's, you know, if you want to go out and find the king, like the next king of God's people, this is the last place you would look. But it's where God sends him. Yeah, you think about it. Um, you have wonderful, tough young men, but I wouldn't want to send Amos or Ezra out with lions and tigers and bears oh my, to fight, you know, to, to protect the sheep by themselves. So, you know, you'd have somebody probably at least just on his age. Yeah. And even then, I wouldn't want to send you out the line of time to I just said John Barley. <laughs> I think it also shows how God uses things that man don't consider as important to, to, uh, to accomplish his purpose. And David was certainly not someone we would have chosen, of course. And if you go back to he has Ruth as a Moabite in his pretty close ancestry, you know, fairly near relative. And the Moabites and the Israelites just didn't get along too well. Yeah, no. In fact, it was just a few chapters ago in Sunday school that we, we read about where the Moabites came from. Mm -hmm. That's right. Ooh, who wants that in their ancestry? Dad. <laughs> It doesn't matter if he wanted it or not, he got it. So does Christ. 
we, we need to be very careful, right? There's, there's a tendency, um, because somebody shows up in Hebrews 11, the, the great hall of faith, or because someone in the Old Testament is a type of Christ in one way or another, sometimes we, we actually reread what the Old Testament says about them and don't pay attention to the details that are there. There are there's very significant differences between David and Christ. But where does Jesus come from? It's from a poor family, right? When, when they bring a sacrifice for Mary's cleansing, it's two birds, which tells you that they couldn't afford any of the other acceptable sacrifices. Where do they live? In the north, Galilee of the Gentile, town of Nazareth. And you can hear, even among the disciples, but especially among the religious leaders who, who are forced, they're compelled to take Jesus seriously, even though they'd rather not, right? Search and see that no prophet arises from Nazareth. He's from, although he's also from Bethlehem, and Bethlehem has acquired some significance because of David, he comes more directly from another town of no significance until much later. And of course, we all know the name of Nazareth because of Jesus. But it would be the town you would use to make fun of somebody. Like, oh, they're probably from Nazareth. They're in Jesus' time, right? I'm not going to throw out suggestions around here. I'll probably get myself in trouble, right? What man thinks, or what men think should be a king, the lineage of a king, and what God has decided is going to be the lineage of a king. And throughout the Bible, you know, it befuddles mankind by always choosing the meek, the one that men would not choose at all. And this is how Israel got themselves in trouble with Saul, right? The Lord allowed them to choose a king. The Lord chose a king for them that, who embodied, as far as outward appearance, all that would be desirable in a king. A prominent, wealthy family, tall of stature, looks good leading the armies, doesn't do a great job leading the armies who is ultimately unfaithful to the Lord. And now the Lord has rejected Saul, but not the king. The Lord has been moving toward kingship, right? We've been told to expect it from Genesis 49, from the end of the book of Numbers, Balaam's oracles, right? He hears the shout of a king among them. From the laws in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17, right? When you go into the land, you will want a king. This is what the king should be like, right? From the repeated refrain in Judges that highlights the problem. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. From Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, right? The Lord is moving toward a monarchy, but not the monarchy Saul, and not a king like Saul. And so he has to directly tell Samuel, because Samuel's ready to go choose another soul, right? Like, this guy looks like a king. This guy looks like he could get into it with Saul and come out on top. Never mind the Philistines, right? But no, not that one. And no, not his almost as tall second older brother. And not that one. And not that one. No, the one who didn't even get the invitation, because he's the youngest and he's out tending the sheep, right? Like seven's a perfect number. Jesse's got seven sons. Oh, yeah. And the other one. What was the purpose of him picking Saul? Because, I mean, he obviously knew Saul 
Why did he want the first king of Israel to fail? Excellent question. Did he want Saul to fail? I almost feel like he was punishing the Israelites a little bit for wanting a king and not following him. So here, take this guy. We do have that repeated pun with Saul's name, which, which sounds like asked for, right? The verb for ask is Sha'al. Saul's name in Hebrew is Sha'ul, which sounds like a passive form. So his name is you asked for it, right? So congratulations, right? Careful what you wish for. You might get it. But Saul's not just turned loose with no idea of what he's supposed to do and then, hey, you didn't do it, right? He's continually led and pointed back to and then confronted by God's prophet. We developed that a bit in chapter 13 and chapter 15, that he's continually presented with the opportunity to repent. And he doesn't do so until after judgment has already been pronounced, right? So Saul's failures were not necessary. In that, in that philosophical sense, right? It could have been otherwise. Saul could have chosen otherwise, right? Now, in terms of primary and secondary causes and God's election and his plan for the nation of Israel, this unfolded. God knew it would. He decreed that it would. But in terms of Saul's and the people's interaction with the Lord's choice, the people's choice, the Lord's commands, it did not have to fall out in the way that it did. Does that make sense? What comes to mind is that seminary discussion about perfect will versus permissive will, about he allowed Adam and Eve choice, and they made bad choices. And that's what comes to mind as I think about if I'm calling correctly, the word to Samuel was give them, give them a king they want. That's paraphrase. Am I remembering that line? Let's look back at that. It's 1 Samuel 8, right? So early in the chapter, the people have demanded a king. It displeased Samuel, verse 6, so he prays. The Lord said, verse 7, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're also doing you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Right? So he does. He talks to them about the king and, and implied in Samuel's description is... Yeah, Deuteronomy 17, the king's going to thumb his nose at that. Like he's not going to do what the law says. But this is what you're asking for, right? It's like they wanted to be like all the other nations because it says, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Yes. Uh, it's like they didn't want to be um, a separate nation unto God. They wanted to be like everybody else. And that was basically the wrong way to choose. You know, and it's really interesting. There have been riots in Israel today over some decisions about how people define democracy. 
uh, as a result of some judicial changes. And I don't know all the details of whatever happened in this civic, civic government now. But here's here is the secular state of Israel that is trying in some ways, it seems to be like other democracies. Mm -hmm. But they're not. No. They, they're, what they're doing today is trying to curb the court's ability to put any restraints on the government. They, basically, they're not allowing um, any anybody else to have a say in what laws are made. Um, whereas before this, the Supreme Court had the ability to put some stops. It's like checks and balances, and they're removing one of those checks, which I don't think is a part of democracy. Yeah, well, it's hard. I mean, so it's very interesting to me that that's going on in the secular state, and now we're here in a situation centuries ago where we're well, trying to sort out how that would be going. Millennia ago. And and quite a different situation, right? Um, and just, I'll say this and then we'll move on, but, but I think your question is assuming a line of continuity that I would not grant. It's assuming a continuity between this people and a modern nation state, and I would not grant that line of continuity. So, so back in chapter 16, uh -huh. our, so, just around, yeah, Jesse's two oldest, David's oldest brothers, are named by name. David's not mentioned even until after he's anointed. Is there any significance in the naming of those two brothers? Like, do they become by men of David? Are they, do they play any role in the future? Like, does he appoint them some position? Or, like, why do we care what their names are? That's a good question. They have names, and they would seem to be the ones, but also by naming them, it helps delay the naming of David. But as to you know, where do we see them later, is that important? We know their names, Abinadab and Shammah. As we continue through the text, that's a good question. Off the top of my head, I don't know. Who was involved with him consecrating Jesse and his sons? David Yeah, I don't know. Right? The, the specific mechanics of whatever process or ceremony may have been involved in that consecration, I don't know. David Yeah. But then he's, but then he's able to, to come, come in. So. Well, and then, and then he's anointed, right? And then it's, it's then, it's after he's anointed that we learn his name. <laughs> it's, it's not a Texas Longhorn. <laughs> it mentions us, the same three uh, sons in verse 13 of 17, that those same three follow Jesse in the battle, like they're named again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, we get their names in the next chapter, I believe. Did y'all discuss, I probably just missed it, but the last verse of chapter 15, and the Lord read it, that he made talking over Israel. I kind of discussed that last time. We did. We talked about it a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But that's, that's a good reminder in the way that it's phrased, right? That 
that Saul's, again, Saul's failures were not necessary failures. He could have done otherwise. And we did talk about also running through that chapter, the idea that God will not change his mind, but he seems to have changed his mind over making Saul king. And that that's his outward, right? His disposition towards Saul has altered in accordance with Saul's disobedience versus obedience. That makes sense. He's, he's done what he said he would do. And that manifests in an apparent change, but the change is in accord with what he said would be the case. Is there a different translation or something that, I mean, that, just that word we've read is so bothersome to me. And I remember, like, um, it seems like it was after the flood, didn't, didn't say that, that the Lord regretted that he had. So, be regret, could be sorry, could be relent, right? Could be as weak as he changed his mind over having Saul as king over Israel. It's hard to understand when you know God that he doesn't, um, no. he doesn't change his mind, but he doesn't make mistakes. So yeah, well, the New Testament reminds us, right, that he, he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. So it's not as though God has removed Saul from being king. He's like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a good question. That's where the text is. I might just be wanting it to say that, but I almost um, feel like it's saying that like, he was saddened, you know, because he didn't. Saul was king in the same way that he wanted to sadden that he had destroyed the world by blood. Yeah, well, it's the same language that's used. Right, it's the same language. Yeah. And we get parallel language with the idea of grieving the Holy Spirit uh-huh. in the New Testament. So, it's a difficult question to unravel. What, how would we describe the emotional life of God, so to speak, right? And when we read things about his regret or his anger or how how do we understand that as a human analogy to describe something in God but in a God who is not mutable and is not ruled by his passions as we are you know going back to those verses uh, in 16 verse 1 how long and we've all grieved. And, but it's interesting that various places in Scripture were told there's a season and move on, which is harder, easier said than done. And that's just to me, again, this is not in Scripture, but I'm thinking, oh, there must have been a death of grief that Saul had over the failures of what could have been. And Samuel? Yeah. Samuel had? Yeah. Well, and part of our question, too, is, is the Lord says to Samuel, how long? And Well, we don't know how long it's been. That's true. We don't know if it's days, weeks, years. We like to create those fill-in-the-gap things. But the text leaves the gaps. When the opening, chapter 16, verse 1, when you say how long, to me, in my mind, indicates a long period of time. It wasn't like a day or two. Yeah. Well, you know, the Lord just kind of 
Dr. Samuel, you know, we got to move on. I don't, that, that's, not, that's not good. I don't mean it that way. Well, the Lord points not to the length of time that has passed in pushing Samuel to move forward, but to his definitive rejection of Saul, right? So he asks, how long will you grieve? And he doesn't follow that up with, because it's been seven years, but because since I have rejected him. So, so the length of time, would, we still don't know. But I can't help but think about Lazarus and Jesus' way three days. Only three days. And we know that was three days. And the depth of Jesus' grief was the sentence Jesus left. I thought we'd get through all of chapter 16 tonight. We're obviously not going to. But we have to finish at least the part that we read. Right, so verse 13. What are the last things said about David just in this? section. There's a very, very interesting detail. Right? Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And then let's, let's pair that with the next verse, the first verse of the next section. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. That doesn't raise any questions at all. Yeah. What's the last thing we hear about David? Saul was terrible. That's about Saul. What's the last thing we hear about David? Oh, he had the spirit of the Lord. He went to Rome. The spirit passed. What spirit? The spirit of the Lord. Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. My mom said, uh, the spirit of the Lord came mildly upon David. Yeah. yeah, it's from that day and going up. From that day forward. In other words, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David and stayed. It's very clear from the next verse that that's not the case for Saul. But there's another interesting detail. Because what spirit was it that rushed upon Saul? Evil spirit from the Lord. Well, yes, but I mean earlier. I mean earlier in Saul's ministry. What spirit is it that rushes upon Saul? If we look at chapter 10, we'll, we'll circle back a bit. In chapter 10 and verse 6, Samuel tells him, in verse 6 of chapter 10, then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. and You'll prophesy with him. You'll be turned into another man. Skip down to verse 10. What rushes upon Saul? The spirit of God. Spirit of God. Interesting. I'm not trying to make a division between God and the Lord and suggest they're different people. But it's a curious, especially just separated by five verses, very curious difference of vocabulary. And if we look again at chapter 11, I have verse 16, but there's not a verse 16. Six, thank you. Um, it's what rushes upon Saul in verse 6 of chapter 11? Spirit of God. What is it that rushes upon David in chapter 16? Spirit of the Lord. Spirit of the Lord. Here's why that's interesting. It's very, very clear that the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David. In the book of Judges, when the Spirit rushes upon Samson, it's the Spirit of the Lord. What Samuel tells Saul will happen is that the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon him. But the text very curiously says the Spirit of God 
rushes upon him. That word of God can be used in Hebrew as a superlative. Like wind of God can just mean a mighty wind, right? Yes. Yes. So in verse 14, the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, definitely. So the spirit of the Lord had been with him. But it's as though in the narration, this little tiny detail of the phrasing just casts one more shadow over Saul. Again, I'm not trying to make a division between Lord and God, but there's this very curious phrasing that could be saying we expected the spirit of the Lord to rush upon Saul, like it rushed upon Samson, like it rushes upon David, and instead a mighty spirit rushed upon Saul, and he did these impressive things. But perhaps, and though the Spirit of the Lord does depart from him in verse 14, perhaps there's this little question mark placed upon Saul's charismatic ministry, so to speak, just in the way it's phrased in the text. Samuel prophesied the Spirit of the Lord the Russian Samuel. So if that wasn't the case, if it was different than that, less than that, wouldn't that paint Samuel as a false prophet? Which we know it wasn't, so... Mm. It's part of a series of instructions that Saul is... right. So it's a combination of this will happen and you do this, and which Paul doesn't do. Right? Things don't unfold the way Samuel tells him they would slash should. And we traced some of that, right, in the, in the long delay between... Saul's prophesying on the one hand and Saul's doing anything against the Philistines on the other. And it turning out that it was Jonathan actually twice who instigated something against the Philistines. So there is that tension in the text between what Samuel says and what happens. Um, well, even, even reading English, we can see that. It says Spirit of the Lord, but then the narrator says Spirit of God. So what, what we're not familiar with is the possibility that that's, that could be a superlative, right? Mighty. So when the spirit, spirit of God rushed upon him, uh, on Saul, he prophesied. Mm-hmm. That's, that was the, what happened. What, uh, what happened when it rushed upon David? When it was, you know. Well, our, the narrative breaks off. Right, it goes to a commercial break, and when it comes back, we're not with David anymore. So, so we don't know the immediate effects of the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon David. So, that was the Spirit of God. I don't know if it's the same or whatever, but when the Spirit of God rushed upon him, then he prophesied. Yep. Again, right, it's, it's narrated in a way that Samuel says, Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of the God rushes upon him, right? We're reading the text. That doesn't immediately spark any red flags, but in retrospect, why is there that curious difference of vocabulary? Could it be just a little question mark early? Is there a difference in the original? Yes, yeah. That, that English translation is reflecting what's going on in the Hebrew text. But the interesting thing is that that's whatever the spirit was uh, and 
uh, changed when David was anointed. There was a removal of God or the Lord's protection. And, and Job comes to mind where protection was removed and he was assaulted with every aggravation. And so I'm wondering if there's a comparison there of protection being removed while he's still in past fellowship, if you will. I'm just reaching for notions. So all I'm doing for us is, is highlighting the difference. There's this very curious difference in phrasing. The level of significance of that difference, I'm not certain of. But what is very clear is the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David and stays. Even in his imperfections. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get to those. My goodness. But the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, right? And then that other thing that I'm sure none of us have questions about. So for next week, right, your homework is read the second half of chapter 16, read chapter 17, maybe reread Genesis 3. And, it, and if and when we get into chapter 17, we'll talk about why Genesis 3 might be relevant. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the gift of your word. Thank you for your work on behalf of your people. Thank you that you seek out shepherds to lead us, who will point us to Jesus. We pray that you would make our shepherds faithful shepherds, that you would lead and guide and protect them as they lead and guide and protect us. We pray that as we read the scriptures, we would see more and more clearly your faithful work on behalf of your unfaithful people the ways that you call us to repentance, for the ways you seek us out when we are wayward. May we never presume, and yet may we take great comfort in the hope of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.